0: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: The Plainfield Teachers College football team was destined for greatness. They were winning game after game and squashed every opposing team. During their entire 1941 fall season, only one team managed to score any points against them, yet that team still lost. The Plainfield Teachers were that good. And leading the team to all its victories was none other than their phenomenal running back, Johnny Chung, a.k.a. the Celestial Comet. Standing six foot three inches tall, Chung was almost certain to be awarded the Heisman Trophy that year. That was until the reporter exposed a shocking secret about the team and the Plainfield Teachers Storybook season it was brought to a grinding halt. For as great as they were, the Plainfield Teachers, Johnny Chung, and the rest of the team's players, Would all become forgotten footnotes to sports history? I am Steve Silberman, and today I present to you the story of the rise and fall of the celestial comet. This is the Useless Information podcast. Useless information. It's October nineteen forty-one, and wars are raging across Europe and Asia. Here in the United States, there's an uneasy feeling that it's only a matter of time before our troops would be drawn into the conflict. The December 7th attack on Pearl Harbor, well, that was still a couple of months away. And when people are on edge, they seek out some form of escapism. You know, something that will distract their minds from the stresses of daily life and an impending war. Some will turn to alcohol, some will bury themselves in their work. And others seek some form of entertainment, you know, it could be radio, motion pictures, or sports. Now, prior to the war, the most popular sports in the United States were baseball, boxing, and track and field. Professional football, that's American football, not soccer, it was still in its infancy, and the dominant form of play was on the collegiate level. And one of those football teams was about to crush all of its opponents and move forefront into the hearts and minds of fans all across the nation. The front page of the New York Times sports section on Sunday, October 26, 1941, gives a good glimpse of the teams that were playing at the time. A large table titled Football Scores summarize the results of 46 college games that were played the previous day. And some are well known to this day. That's Army vs. Columbia, 13-0. Navy vs. Harvard, 0-0. No one scored anything. Cornell vs. Colgate, 21-2. And Dartmouth vs. Yale, 7-0. And then there were some lesser-known schools listed. There's Hartwick versus Lowell Textile, 21-0. Green Mountain Junior College versus Vermont Junior College, 13-0. And Blair Academy versus Scranton Junior College, 37-7. Now, I won't bother you with the results of all of the games, but I was particularly interested in the seven teachers' colleges that were listed. And this may not seem like a lot, but those colleges made up about 8% of the teams. Keep in mind that the bulk of the school teachers of the time were women, so it struck me as peculiar that these schools would even have enough male students to successfully compete among the bigger schools, which of course were male-dominated. And it's not that these teachers' colleges did exceptionally well that week. There was Hofstra versus Trenton Teachers, thirty-eight to six; Howard versus Dover Teachers, thirteen to zero; Mansfield Teachers versus the Morrisville Aggies, thirty-six to six. Potomac State vs. Shepherd Teachers 13-0, and Grove City vs. Slippery Rock Teachers 0-0. Now you may be wondering on Slippery Rock Teachers, but it is a real school. It was founded as Slippery Rock State Normal School in 1889, normal school being the term for teachers' colleges back then. It was renamed Slippery Rock State Teachers College in 1926, and it's currently known as Slippery Rock University and located in western Pennsylvania. Yet of all the teams listed that day, no school captured the public's attention more than New Jersey's Plainfield teachers. They had beaten Winona 27-3. I should tell you that reconstructing their season from the newspaper archives, that was a difficult task. But I was able to determine that up until their game against Winona, the Plainfield Lions already beaten Benson Institute 20-0 on September 27th. They beat Scott 12-0 on October 4th. And Chesterton 24 0 on October 11th. A little side note here is that the team had been playing every Saturday, but I was unable to find any sources that confirmed that a game was played on October 18th. There were several reports that they played against a team called Fox, but I couldn't locate the score and I couldn't confirm that. Anyway, let's get back to the story. And with each passing week, the Plainfield Teachers team would somehow crush its opponents and remain among the ever-shortening list of unbeaten teams. And of course, everyone loves an underdog, especially when a small school like Plainfield seems to come out of nowhere. After Plainfield walloped Randolph Tech 35-0 on November 1st, the press began to take notice. Then, one week later, they buried Ingersoll 13-0. to The following day, November 9th, New York Post reporter Herbert Allen wrote, quote, John Chung, Chinese sophomore halfback, has accounted for 57 of the 98 points scored by his unbeaten and untied team in four starts. If the Jersey Dons don't watch out, he may pop up in Chiang Kai-shek's offensive department one of these days. And that's the end of the quote. While Allen's Chiang Kai-shek comment will be deemed inappropriate today, his focus on Johnny Chung's performance was spot on. Known as a Celestial Comet, Chung would emerge as college football star athlete that fall. And I should point out that his exploits were perhaps a bit exaggerated by sports writers. In their game against Ingersoll, it was reported that, quote, Chung scored on a 47-yard run for the first tally and dragged five tacklers with him for the second. Another report said that, quote, Chung was a full-blooded Chinese who gained an average of 7.9 yards every time he carried the ball, due largely to his habit of eating wild rice between the halves. Yeah, right. Would anyone make such remarks today? I don't think so. Yet there was no doubt that the celestial comet was a force to reckon with. Should Johnny Chung lead his team to win both the next two games and Atlantic City's New Year's Eve Blackboard Bowl championship, he was almost certain to be awarded the Heisman Trophy. Plainfield's head coach was a guy named Ralph Hurry Up Hoblitzel. I have no clue where that nickname came from, but he once had been a star player for another seemingly fictitiously named school, Spearfish Normal. Yet it once was a real school. Located in Spearfish, South Dakota, the school was renamed Black Hills Teacher College in 1941, became Black Hills State College in 1964, and assumed its current name of Black Hills State University in 1989. Hoblitzel is best remembered for his wing W formation. And over the years, numerous articles have attempted to explain how it worked, and the most detailed I could find was from the July 31, 1950 edition of the Elmira Star Gazette. There, reporter Alan Gould Jr. writes that Hoblitzel, quote, used a revolutionary W formation in which the ends face the backs and generally accounted for not only a fifth, but also a sixth man in the backfield. Now, I admit that I know little about football, basically nothing, so I'll leave it for others to interpret how this worked, but somehow I get a hunch that even that description's a bit off. There were two other important players on the playing field team. The first, who's only briefly mentioned by name in the press, was 6'3", or 190.5 centimeter tall, pass receiver, Boardinghouse Smithers. The other was right tackle Morris Newberger, who would prove critical to both the team's incredible success and their ultimate downfall. And I'll tell you more on Neuberger later in the story, but it was his actions that would not only bring an end to the team's winning streak, but it also forced the school to permanently eliminate football. And let's face it, any team that chooses mauve and puce that's pale purple and reddish purple as their team colors, well, they should have never been allowed to play in the first place
0: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. So turn to the nerds to answer your real world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallets Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I guess you could say that the beginning of the end for the Plainfield Lions came shortly after Herbert Allen's November 9, 1941 New York Post blurb. You see while football is fun, the members of the Plainfield team were students at a college and they were preparing to become teachers. And of course, that meant passing their exams. Jerry Croydon, the spokesman for the team, he issued a press release that read, in part, quote, Six of our players, including Chung, flunked their midterm exams, and now the last two games must be forfeited. What happened to Plainfield shouldn't happen to a dog. With that, Plainfield's incredible winning streak was brought to a sudden halt they had to forfeit games against Appalachian Tech on November 15th and Harmony Teachers on Thanksgiving Day. And of course, that big dream of going to the Blackboard Bowl, it was squashed. But what if the team had been able to play those games? Well, my crystal ball can help answer this question. What I see is a cloudy future for the Plainfield Lions. But wait, a vision is appearing within the amorphous sphere. I see, I see, yes, the playing field teachers would have definitely won both of those games. And, and, they would have buried Appalachian Tech 40-27. to 27. So you're probably wondering, how can I say this with certainty? And it's not that I'm any great visionary. I just happen to know the rest of the story. You see, a lot of what was reported was totally wrong. First, Johnny Chung, the celestial comet, he never scored a single point and then coach Blitzel's wing W formation, it was never executed. In fact, Plainfield teachers lacked everything required to have a successful football team. Players, coaches, opposing teams, a football field, and even a school. It would be safe to say that Plainfield didn't even own a football. In other words, it was all just one big hoax. Although I should mention that one tiny bit of the story was true. That is at the team's right tackle, Morris Newberger. He really did exist. The problem was that he wasn't on the team. In reality, he was a Wall Street stockbroker, and he had made the whole thing up. Newberger was born on February 26 of 1906 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. After graduating from Harvard in 1926, he joined his family's investment firm of Newberger, Loeb, and Company. The origins of this company can be traced back to a wholesale clothing business that was started in the 1860s by his grandfather, also named Morris Newberger, and it later transitioned into a securities business. This would be a multi-generational family business, and it would continue until its bankruptcy in 1974. Well, the younger Morris Newberger was a huge sports fan, and he took great interest in the scores that were published in the newspapers. Then one day, he began to wonder a lot about some of the lesser-known schools. You know, were they legit? Could there really be a Slippery Rock Teachers College? Newberger also realized there was no way the reporters from any of the big New York City newspapers could be attending any of these obscure games. He concluded that the papers were dependent on someone at each of these schools calling in the game results every Saturday night. And this was something that Newberger could have a bit of fun with he'd create a fictional team and see if he could dupe one of the New York City papers into printing the results of one of their never-really-played games. First, he needed a name for the team, so he jotted down several plausible names, but ultimately settled upon Plainfield teachers. His main reason for choosing this was that one of his secretaries was from Plainfield, New Jersey, although I'm thinking perhaps the Flying Figments would have been a better choice. Next, he supposedly set out to create a false schedule for the team, and this meant coming up with nine opponents, all of which were also fictional teams, and he predetermined the outcome of every single game. Fictitious team, check. Fictitious false schedule, check. Fictitious opponents, check. Fictitious game results, check. The only question was, would any paper fall for it? Well, the only way to find out was to call one of the papers. And during the evening of Saturday, October 11th, 1941, the phone rang at the New York Herald Tribune. Sports editor Harold Rosenthal picked up the handset. And Newberger asked, quote, Sports department? He then added, I'd like to report a football score. Plainfield teachers 17, Winona 3. Rosenthal then queried, Plainfield teachers? That a New Jersey school? Yes, was the reply. Rosenthal stated, okay, thanks very much, and proceeded to hang up the phone. But Neuberger wondered if Rosenthal had really fallen for it. So just to play it safe, he called the New York Times and he did a repeat performance. The next morning, Neuberger went to a nearby newsstand and he picked up copies of both newspapers. And sure enough, both had printed the Plainfield teacher's game results. Many years later, Rosenthal would comment on his falling for the prank, quote, It was not uncommon for the smaller schools to telephone their scores because of the lack of telegraph facilities. Also, there were a good many small schools taking up football and dropping it continually. It was at this point that Newberger began to create the players for his imaginary team. It's unclear where the name Johnny Chung came from, but nearly all the players on the team were either relatives or people who worked at Newberger Loeb & Company. And while Coach Hublitzel's name may seem totally made up, the brokerage firm once had an affiliate in Baltimore named Kahn Neuberger & Hublitzel. And after the New York Post ran that glowing piece on Johnny Chung, Neuberger decided to kick the whole thing into high gear. He knew that any top-notch football team needs a good PR person, so, Newberger hired the best in the field. That was a man named Jerry Croydon. Newberger, of course, knew that Croydon was perfect for the job, and that's mainly because they were one and the same person. The name comes from the Croydon Hotel, which was located at 12 East 86th Street in Manhattan. It would be Croydon's job to send out press releases, contact the news outlets, and handle the team's scheduling. A telephone dedicated solely to team business was installed in Croydon. I mean Newberger's office, and to make it all seem legit, stationery emblazoned with the words "Plainfield Teachers Athletic Association" at the top was printed. Basically, every Saturday evening after each fictional game supposedly ended, Newberger would assume his Jerry Croydon persona and call in the results of the latest Plainfield win to the New York papers his friend, that's Alexander Bink-Dannenbaum, he would contact the Philadelphia record and do the same. But initially, the two men failed to coordinate the information they'd pass along, which resulted in Plainfield having played a different opponent in the New York papers than they did in the Philadelphia ones. But, of course, eventually the two did get their stories straightened out. It's unclear as to how the hoax was exposed, but there are several theories that have been put forward. The first and most repeated was that Time magazine somehow caught wind of the hoax. Some theorized that a disgruntled Wall Street broker tipped them off, but really no proof was ever provided. Supposedly, Newberger begged time to allow Plainfield teachers to finish out their season and play in the Blackboard Bowl, which I should point out is also fictitious. But the magazine refused to play along. In response, Newberger wrote that one last press release that described how the team had to forfeit its remaining games because so many of its players had failed their midterms. But Time, being a weekly publication, would not publish its story, which is titled Sports Page Error, until Monday, November 17, 1941, which was three days after it broke in the newspapers. It was writer Caswell Adams writing for the already-duped New York Herald Tribune, who beat time to the punch by writing about the hoax the previous Friday. His article, titled Brokers Find Phantom School Easy to Sell in Football, began with a simple poem. Far above New Jersey's swamplands, Plainfield teacher's spires, Mark a phantom phony college that got on the wires. Perfect record made on paper, imaginary team. Hail to thee, our ghostly college, product of a dream. Adams, who passed away in 1957 at the age of 50, said that it was pure luck that he had been the one to uncover the hoax. He credited a friend for learning about Newberger's phone calls to the papers, but it's unclear who that friend was. But it was reported that Irving Marsh, who was an assistant sports editor at the Herald Tribune at the time, he received an anonymous tip and then attempted to learn more about the Plainfield teacher's team. After calling the Board of Education in Plainfield and discovering that the team never existed, he may have been the one that asked Adams to pen the story. But of course, that's pure conjecture on my part. In the end, the Plainfield teachers managed to accomplish several things. First, they were subject of the 1957 teleplay Plainfield Teachers College, which ran on national television. Next, the team easily duped the New York Times, which of course is very difficult to do. And lastly, the team's story will forever be in the history books. The Plainfield teachers will forever be remembered as having been unbeaten, untied, and unreal. Useless? Useful? I'll leave that for you to decide. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. This story on the Plainfield teacher's team is reminiscent of the Salem Trade School story that I recorded way back in January of 2016. But unlike what happened in this story, there really was a Salem team that played the games. Now, if you've never heard that story, I encourage you to go back and check it out. It's a really, really good story. It was episode number 90. Then later on in January of 2019, I interviewed John Murphy, whose father played on the Salem Trade School team. So you should check that one out also. In other news, about two weeks ago, I received an email from a 93-year-old man who was an FBI cryptanalyst in the 1950s, and he headed the team that deciphered the microfilm that was contained in the hollow nickel that was the subject of podcast number 168. That's just a few months ago. Now I did speak to him for about an hour and 45 minutes the other day, and he had a lot of great things to share. So he's sending me some further information, and then we'll sit down and record an interview together. So stay tuned for that. Also, the next episode will be retrocast number 12, and I think you'll really, really like this one. And that's because I recorded it a couple of weeks ago with Tim Harford, who's the host of one of my favorite podcasts. It's called Cautionary Tales. Now, if you're not familiar with Tim, uh, he's a reporter for the Financial Times in London, and he's penned numerous books. That includes The Undercover Economist, which sold over 1 million copies, and he's done several TED Talks. I'm still in the process of editing that audio, but I'll post it when it's completed. And in addition to the shorter stories that I typically do in the retrocast, Tim offered up several additional great stories that he'll share with you. Anyway, you can find the Useless Information podcast on all the leading podcast platforms. That includes Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. So make sure you subscribe. If you'd like to contact me about this episode, the podcast itself, the website, or whatever, please do so through my email at steve at uselessinformation.org. That's steve at uselessinformation.org. You can use Facebook Messenger, or you can use the contact form on the website. That's uselessinformation.org. My handle on Twitter is at uselessinfocast. That's at uselessinfocast. And be sure to like the show on Facebook. You can just do a quick search there, and the Useless Information podcast should pop up. As always, thanks for listening, and take care, everyone. Bye.